Hey there, hi there. Welcome to another episode of Ice Ice Beta. This is a podcast about ice climbing, big solos, and dry tooling. And I'm your host, Aaron Gary. Today we talk with Stas Beskin, who may or may not be a spy. But before we get to the bottom of that, I want to thank our new supporters on Patreon, Jess, Ryan, and Noah. What is assured about Stas is that he's known for soloing big, bold climbs such as Rainbow Serpent and Fearful Symmetry, two of the most iconic WI6s in the Canadian Rockies. It's one thing to solo big flows. It's another thing entirely to do it on freestanding pillars about as wide as your shoulders. But he does that too, and he does so without swinging his tools. Stas's conception of ice climbing revolves around displacing as little ice as possible. It's an adaptive strategy that means different things in different situations, but it's always about fitting one's body and style to the ice in front of you. It's about being attuned to the environment and trying to fit it, not the other way around. This idea is central to Stoss's approach to life, and can be seen in his pacifist nature, summarized in a motto he has, open up your fist. This means to show up with an open hand and heart, a gesture of peace, not with a closed fist, a sign of aggression. We had this interview shortly after the Israel-Hamas conflict started. Stas served in the Israeli military and wanted to share a statement before we get into this episode. And I quote Stas here. Until we recognize that life is sacred, and nothing justifies taking lives, we won't stop killing each other. Life is a universal value, as suffering is a universal part of it. But until we realize that we are all the same, there will be no end. Now, the interview. Hey, Stas. How you doing today? Good, good. How are you, Aaron? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I'm sitting here with a cup of herbal Ayurvedic tea. Tis the season. A little tickle in my throat. <laughs> so, some people say that you're a spy. On the record, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth in this interview? Depends. <laughs> Depends on your question, but <laughs> uh, <laughs> I believe so. Yes. <laughs> of course, of course. Um, well, you actually have one of the more intriguing life stories that I've heard. So let's start with your upbringing. Where did where did you grow up? I was born in Ukraine. I was I was I was born in Kiev. Then um, at the age of two. My mom and me, we moved to a Caucasus Mountains, a Russian part of Caucasus Mountains. So we literally, we were living in the mountains, like in order to go to the mountains, I didn't need to take a bus or anything. I would just pack my backpack and go out to the door and start, and start going up. Then age of 18, I left Russia because it's a, it's, it's the age to go to the military and, um, this is not really what I wanted to do. And also Russia was in a, in a state of war at this period with the Chechnya. So we decided that I will go to Israel. So at the age of 18, I moved to Israel and went, went to the military there. But Israel military is a bit different from Russian military, maybe not a bit, quite a lot. So this was until 2003 so years in the in the Israeli military, and then I started to study at some point, and I tried to study ecology, and I kind of realized that the 
studies were not exactly what I hoped they, they will be. And also at this point, I was in a situation that I needed to work during the night and to study during the day. And this was, this was very rough. So like around, around the year, like into the studies, I kind of realized that I, I also will not be able to keep going like this. So I dropped the studies and worked in some governmental organizations until 2009. And then I started to work for the Minister of Foreign Affairs of, uh, of Israel. And this basically allowed me to live in different places in the world. So I started with Norway, four years in Norway. As you know, I was kicked out of Norway and then lived in different places and lived in France, again, worked and lived in Kathmandu, Uzbekistan, and then Canada. Are you allowed to talk about what you were doing? Um, Noted. You know what the foreign foreign representative in the in the in the foreign country do different things. Not really, not really exciting. Okay, it was more than just military service because you were in an, an elite special force team. No, so I came to Israel and I didn't have a family there because all my family back in the time they they were in Russia. So I came to Israel. I spent one year studying the language, uh, learning the culture, you know, kind of preparation for life in Israel. And then they, and then they go to the military right away. So I wanted to get to the, like to the most elite unit. And so I couldn't get into the most elite unit just, just because they wouldn't accept me because it's kind of suspicious. Like, as you say, they, they probably thought as well that I was a spy. So. I didn't get to the most elite unit, but uh, let's say to the maybe third elite unit. So yeah, it was still good. I'm going to take a step back though. You were growing up in the Caucasus and it sounds like you spent a lot of time just in the mountains. I imagine that had a, quite a, an influence on you. So do you want to just talk about, you know, growing up like in the mountains and um, yeah, what was, what was that like? So this time it was kind of very, I, I want to say very, not controversial, but it has bought a lot of good and, and a lot of bad. Good because as I said, I, I grew up basically living in the mountains. This is where I got connected to the nature. Like I remember, uh, logging, like clear cut in there. And I just, I just remember as a, well, as a team, just going myself carrying the camera, some food and water, just running to take pictures. And I remember like back in the days, I could feel like a physical pain from, from what they do to nature. So good thing, because again, I was living in the mountains with everything and I got connected to the mountains. And the bad thing is, so half of the time we, we lived in a place in a village that they actually hate, they hate Russians. For a good reason, because Russian, Russians always brought wars to, to Caucasus and they only, yeah, nothing really good. And me and my mom, we were the only Russian looking people in this village. So 
it was tough. It was tough for me uh, going, going to the school because everybody just, just hated me. Uh, so it was, it was really tough and it started to affect me in a bad way. Like from being a good kid, I, I started to change. Yeah. So it took, it took my mom some time to realize that I cannot go to the, to the school there because it's just not good. It's just not good for me. And yeah, so she managed, she managed to fix this uh, situation. So we went uh, back to uh, Kiev, back to Ukraine, where she put me on to uh, uh, classes of martial art. And I didn't have any, any friends. So I was studying at home myself because, because like I didn't go to the school there either. And the only people that I was in contact with were the people from this martial arts uh, courses. So this kind of put me back on the track of being like a good kid. What do you think it was about the martial arts that was, I guess, getting you back on track as you put it? Well, she put me on something that they also dealt with the spiritual uh, side of uh, martial arts and not only with the physical one. And I believe this was, this was what, what played the role. How old were you at this point? 14, 15, 16, I want to say. Okay. So you were, you were in Kiev until you were 18 then, and then you moved to Israel. Do we live there two years? And then we went back, uh, back to Caucasus. Now, so these two years I started, I started alone at home. So my mom saw that it kind of worked. So we, we went back to this, uh, to this, uh, village, but I didn't go to the school there anymore. So it was, it was actually interesting because, because as I said, half of my time in Caucasus, I grew, I grew in this place and another half 25 kilometers away from this native village, but it was a completely different, like this, like this village, it had no water, no electricity, I want to say. So let's say like water, I need to go like half a kilometer with two, with two buckets, like one jerry can, I remember one jerry can and one bucket. So I would, I would fill the water in a, like a tap, like in the middle of the street. While the other place, it was a, back in the time, it was the biggest uh, telescope in the world. So it was like a, like a centralization of, uh, you know, technology. I don't want to say culture because it was, it was a very small place. There were only 2000 scientists living there, but technology tried so very, very well educated people. So it was half time in this village without water and electricity. And then another half time in this super developed place. Was your father with you as well? Cause I, I was reading, he was an astrophysicist, right? Yeah. So he, he basically lived and worked in this, in this telescope place. So it was depending on the relationship between my mom and him. So when they were on, on good terms, we were living together. And when they were on the bad terms, we would move back to this native village. It sounds like, uh, it sounds like most children in your position would have had maybe like <laughs> a challenging time of, of things. You know, it's a lot of, a lot of movement, a lot of, uh, um, maybe like uncertainty. Movement, yeah, movement. I remember less, but it, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Because yeah, because every time you come to a different environment, and you know, as a kid, 
you don't really know how to how to find yourself in this in this new reality. Not easy, but it's okay. Um, I want to come back to the spirituality with the martial arts because it seems that's been something that's stayed with you um, through your whole life. So, what were what was the spiritual side that you were, I guess, practicing through the martial arts? And like, I remember one of the, one of the main principles in like in one of the courses. So they said the best, the best warrior is the one that when he's about to fight, he will first try to run away. And then if he'll have no choice, he'll fight. Nothing really life-changing. <laughs> I just, I just remember this one. Well, I mean, that's really interesting because, you know, you're talking about feeling you know, physical pain from seeing clear cutting in the woods growing up and this idea that the strongest warrior before a fight tries to run away. I mean, these are things that seem important to you at that age. And then you end up in the military, which is quite different environment. So how was being in the military? How did you grapple with that? Uh, well, physically and psychologically, it was rough. It was very rough. And I think I got lucky because in our unit, if I remember correct, we were 12. So only two of us, me and another guy finished the military service without like physical irreversible damage. So like broken meniscus, like back problems, knee problems, joint problems. But yeah, you go to the military neutral when you are like when you are a team. And, um, I'm not sure I want to go into this, but basically when you are that young, you act like, like a sponge, you, you absorb everything that you, that, that you hear and that, and that you are told. And in Israel, it's kind of because, because the country has a constant threat from basically all around. So everybody has to go to the military and this is the way it is. And. Yeah, without the military, Israel wouldn't be wouldn't be existing. And and again, in Israel, everything everything is. I don't want to say built around the military, but because it's such a big part of life of everybody's life, like everybody's respecting the military. Everybody realizes that military is basically what lets what lets them live in this place. So it's it's a very big part of the culture. So once once you get in. Kind of natural, and it makes total sense that you that you go to the military. I think I'll pivot more towards ice climbing. Yeah, <laughs> sure. <laughs> you ended up in in Norway, mm -hmm. and it sounds like that's really uh, shaped you as a as an ice climber. A crazy statistic that I read is you're averaging seventeen kilometers of vertical ice per year. Is that correct? Yeah, I, I. I counted it, I think two years uh, in a row and, and this was the number. So it was possible because first the season in Norway is very long. We would start climbing in late September. You need to hike up, well, you need to drive up and then I like, need to hike up, but the ice, the ice was there. And I would start training as an initial part of the, like all the progress. So to me, it was like most of my weekends. I would go to like Craig and just run laps, run laps, like tiny bit different line, maybe, maybe the same line, but changing moves, just running laps through the whole day. So I was less 
focused on, let's say, let's climb this line. Well, it was as well, but most of the time it was training. And this is basically what allowed me to climb, to climb, to climb that much. A lot of top roping, a lot of top roping. Not a lot of soloing then? I actually stumbled over a video of me soloing some, I don't know, water is four, maybe four plus I should already so I definitely started somewhere there. Yeah, but I think it started way before that because when I, because when I was living in Kokosic, I was, a lot of times that I was going to the mountains, I was going alone. Yeah, I think it all started there. Where were you in Norway? Because I know that the very northern fjords have. No, it's not. It's not. It's a. It's it's the west coast that has that has the craziest stuff. Is that where you were stationed? No, I was stationed in Oslo. I didn't go to the northern part like Tromsø and then Lofoten Island, but inland all across the country to the west coast, we could climb. Yeah, within weekend trips. And no problem. And there is so much ice in Norway because it's a land of waterfall. So in winter, everything freezes. Everything that I've read about you basically centers around Canada. Um, it seems like it was your playground for quite a while. So, so you moved to Canada first to Ontario, is that correct? And then, and then Vancouver? Vancouver Island. Um, what made you choose Canada? Ice. Ice. Because... Well, I didn't climb everywhere in the world, but to the best of my knowledge, Norway is the best, then Canada is second best. Since you've moved there, you've climbed some of the hardest, proudest classic lines, uh, including crazy bold solos uh, such as Rainbow Serpent and Fearful Symmetry. And you've also put up a bunch of new lines as well, especially in the past couple of years in Quebec. Um, the question sort of preamble. Um, what attracts you to climbs that you like to go out and pursue? Well, I think pretty much um, what drives most of the people and the challenge and the beauty and like I get the combination of a mental challenge plus the aesthetical I don't want to say pleasure that you get when climbing the line, but you know what you feel aside from mental and physical challenge. So I guess, I guess, I guess it's this combination. Well, I understand like the aesthetics of it, but then soloing is its own category too. I mean, is there some sort of mental com component to the climbing? Ice climbing is mostly mental. The, the mental aspect is much more. I don't want to say important than in rock climbing, but it, it carries much more weight, right? Because everything in ice is, is about keeping your cool. If you don't have metal control, probably bad things will happen. While in rock climbing, you can lose your temper, no problem, and maximum you'll just fall. So it's definitely a lot. And I do solo just because it feels that I have no problem. Well, again, depends, but... If I follow something, I know inside me that I'm 100% capable of climbing this line. There will be no gray zone. I, I want to say that I, that I treat ice climbing in general as a solo climbing. So there's no such a thing as I'm looking at the line and I'm like, hmm, I'm not sure I can climb it, but I will try. It, it's a good approach for 
when you do rock climbing, but it's not a good approach when you do ice climbing. Ice climbing, you can come with this approach if you're if you're on top rope, and this is how you get better mostly. But when you are on the sharp end, when you are leading, you're not sure that you can do this line safely. You are not in the right in the right place. This is my approach. I guess what I don't quite understand is if you were doing, it sounds like a, like a lot of your earlier ice climbing in Norway on top rope. And then we sort of glossed over the Alps. So presumably you were doing, you know, you were ratcheting things up, but you know, how do you go from just laps and laps and laps of top rope to soloing 200 plus meters of WI6? Well, because by running laps and laps on, on top rope, you get, you get confident, you get to know the, the axis, you get to feel, you get to feel it as an, as an extension of your hand. It, it's turning something that, that is a weird, not activity, but weird movement and, and your body is absolutely not familiar with it into something that is more and more and more and more and more familiar. It's like, it's like a baby learning to walk, right? Your style watching the videos of you climb, it's quite distinct. And it's definitely not smash and bash. It's like about as far as from that as I can tell. Do you want to, you know, how would, how would you describe your style? Disturbing the ice as least as possible. And I don't want to say that it's not like leave no trace because I still leave trace and this trace will probably be healed in the next day or something, but, but it just feels more right within me to go what what is what is in front of me and not to change this this thing into what fits me and i think it's less important when we're talking about like easy or easy ice climbing but when when you come to tricky ice you kind of don't have a choice because there's only that much that that, that you can change and if you change too much it will go down so better know how to not change it. I'm uh, pondering, pondering a question. Um, there's an adapting to the ice itself. You've, you've also talked about having an appreciation for the ice. And so when you do that, I feel like you just want to jump in so you can go for it. It's going to pivot the conversation a bit, but I think it's okay for a, for a short time. So it's not only the appreciation for the ice. It's appreciation for, for everything that, that we get like every day. And I think the modern lifestyle for the most of the people, at least, uh, you are put in a, in a condition, in a situation that cuts your connection with nature completely. Like you don't realize that every day you get everything that you need to leave. You get water, you get air to breathe, you get food to eat. And to me, like there's a great book that's called Breaking the Sweetgrass. So the author brings this, uh, this example of your beloved grandma making your favorite cookies for you and offering them to you. So of course you would accept them with many thank you and you would cherish and appreciate what, what she does. And you would never think about breaking into, into her kitchen in the night 
taking taking all the cookies and also grabbing the plate. So we fail to transform this attitude into the into the world around us. Like we we definitely keep these values within the human society for the most part. But we don't see that on a daily basis we get these cookies. Like think how not cool would it be not to have air to breathe or water to drink or trees to give you, you know, to give you shade, to give you air. So it's not only night climbing. I think trying to practice gratitude for what you get every day is something that we as humanity need to need to fix because it's definitely broken link between us and the, and the nature around us. And if you transfer it to the ice climbing, let's say you climbed, you had an amazing day. The ice was great. You just feel so great. So why not, why not feel it gratitude? Because you had such a, such a good time, right? If somebody would provide you with, with that feeling, you would be very grateful. You would try to give, to do things back. But for some reason, it cuts when we're talking about nature and to me, I think this is something that all of us can practice and, and try to fix this broken link. What does that gratitude practice look like for you? Do you, you, do, you do a prayer? Do you say thank you? Or um, I'm trying to do many things. So it all, it all starts with the, with the will, with the desire of, of being grateful, with feeling the need of being grateful. But so sure, I would... I would say thank you because, because you let me up, you let me down. I had, I had such a great time. Thank you so much. But you can also think beyond that, right? Because even if we're talking specifically about like, about ice climbing, you can think like what can affect ice, like global warming, what can affect global warming. And I believe if you have this intention inside you, even if you don't do things, but even having this attention uh, intention inside you will already change things. We just watched a documentary yesterday. It's called the, it's called the secret of water. So we all consist of water, right? Apparently water has memory. Apparently our thoughts, and there were multiple experiments, our thoughts can affect the structure of water. Only, only like thoughts alone, like that's it. So this is. This is what I'm saying. So even having this intention inside you, even if you don't do things, but having, having this attention can already start to shift things. Well, now I want to ask about that. <laughs> um, what was one of the examples of the experiments that stood out to you? Ah, there? Oh man, so cool. It's actually, it's funny because, uh, because we have a friend and she's very rational. She's very rational. Like she does, she, she only believes like in what she sees. So there was one of the experiments in this movie. So they took three, three jars with rice, the same rice, and they covered the rice with tap water, the same water, like, well, like all three of them. So it's three glass jars with rice and water. So on a daily basis, I think, I think just once a day for the duration of three weeks, the first glass, a person who was participating in this experiment, he would say, thank you, right? To the second glass, he would say, you fool. And the third glass, he would just ignore. Okay. So after, after three weeks, the first glass jar with rice that was 
that take you on a daily basis. It started to ferment. Uh, the second blast jar is just black, like black, completely black. While the first one is completely white, you just you can see that it like ferments. And the third one, the ignored one, was completely rotten. So a friend, <laughs> a friend of mine, so she started this uh, experiment like in her place. <laughs> but yeah, it's just yeah, like I always. And it's, it's funny because I felt before that that water can be dead. So we are trying to dip in uh, like in the rivers and lakes like as much as we can. So at least a few times like every week. And it feels completely different from taking a shower. So to my feeling was that the water in the shower is the dead water. There is no, there is no, there is no energy in it. And this documentary that we saw, the, the secret of water, it totally explains why like totally is this related to um your practice of qigong at all i think so i think so i think so definitely qigong expanded my vision of word as as energy yeah and yeah 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 for sure i'm very ignorant on on qigong and let's maybe assume that our the listeners are too so do you mind just explaining a little bit about what what this practice is and and maybe practice is actually not enough to describe it uh, so qigong is an ancient a uh, system that was that was born in uh, china and initially it was uh, divided into three branches it's martial qigong it's healing qigong and it's a spiritual qigong so we studied a uh, healing qigong and basically, Qigong is a system of practices, beliefs, and way of thinking that puts you in a direct contact with the energy that everything around us is made from. And so it gives you the access. I don't want, I don't want to say controlled because this is not, this is not the right thing to think or to try or to achieve when you are, when you're doing Qigong, but it gives you direct access to this energy. Maybe I'm grasping at straws here, but I mean, it, I mean, it seems like there would be a connection between you and ice. I mean, you have this really intimate relationship. You spend a lot of time on it. And I guess like when you're climbing, are you particularly attuned to the ice? Are you feeling a certain way? Like, like, are you feeling the energy and vibrations from the ice as well? Things like that. Um, so I can, I can sort of divide this process into two. So first, when I'm, when I'm approaching the line, I, I'm feeling into the, like into the energy, especially when we're talking about the ice that can collapse. If we're talking about free hanging ice or free standing pillars. So I'm feeling into the energy of this, all these structures. And I definitely can feel if it's about the critical level when, when it's when it's just about to collapse. And it's not, it's not about this information doesn't come from my eyes. It comes from different, I don't know <laughs> from, from where, but then, so, so, so based on that, mostly I would, I would make a decision if I would climb it or not. But when, while, while climbing it's so, it's a very, 
it's a very particular feeling when like 100% of what you feel and what you, you don't think of what you feel goes into one millimeter of the ice peak that goes into the ice. Like all your focus goes there, like the whole focus is there. And then it changes to the second ice and then it changes to your frog point. So one, <laughs> it's a very, I think, I think it's also one of the, one of the great feelings about like about that because there is no there is no place well yeah there is no place for anything else it's just your 100% focus shifting between your different deployments of the steel that you have in your hands and and on your feet into that which makes sense if you're talking about adapting your body to the conformations of the ice like you're very just like particular to the shapes and the dynamics of it um but it's also you're not you're not a hundred percent accurate. Uh, reading your Instagram and a hanging pillar came down, I think, just as you had left, or or, or something had happened where there was, um, you know, a pillar had crashed down. So first time when when we came to the to the real big drip, this part it wasn't it wasn't basically touching the ground. It was a little gap, and this thing. So we came. We felt very scared being in the vicinity of this, like all this, all this tree hanging icicle because it just felt so wrong and for reasons. So we were trying to figure out how would we climb the line and, and put in the belayer away in case this thing goes down. So we said we'll hang the belayer on the third bolt. And then even if it goes down, belayer will be still high above the ground. And then we were trying to spot the bolt on the line. And we couldn't spot all of them, but we spotted most of them. So, and then we started to go to the backpacks and then the thing collapsed. Then it collapsed. If it would collapse five seconds earlier, five seconds earlier. Cause even, even, even now, last of the blocks dropped me, dropped me on the ground. So Daniel basically was, was in front of me. And I remember falling and just pushing him away. And one of the last blocks still got me. So five, five seconds earlier, and I probably wouldn't be here now talking to you. So yeah, uh, it was, it was, it was, I want to say in my early days, it was, it was before the Qigong, it was, yeah, it was, well, basically it was when we were, when I was living in Ontario and traveling and traveling to the Rockies every, every winter. Okay. So you. You have this very, like, finely attuned, being adaptive to the ice style generally. But then in 2018, you came out with this video describing the scratch technique. What is, what is that technique? It's a technique that I see myself as a safety tool, as something that, that can save life. So it's basically the technique of not disturbing the ice whatsoever whatsoever so if you practice if you practice and if you are good with this technique you are not going to cause the ice structure to collapse and so well i guess how did it come about because it's allowed you to climb some pretty wild thin pillars yeah so i was i was again practicing top roping um, on one of the sled climbs in ontario and it's basically the way that it always forms. So it's, it's, it's 
it's a lot of light in the corner. And then if you go to the right or the left, there is, there is less and less light. So I got tired of just running laps on this thick ice corner. So I said, why not trying to climb the thinner ice? And then next, next left, even, even thinner ice. And then you come to the point that I wouldn't swing anymore because, because, because like the ice was too thin. So I first uh, started to hook like little eyebrows that were formed like on top of irregularities, like of rock. Sometimes even like the rock is smooth, it happens a lot because the water just flows like in drips and then it creates this little eyebrow. So I was hooking the side brows and then from hooking the side brows, so I kind of was loading it. And then I don't remember the exact moment of how did I move from loading ice brows to just making a placement. But I think it's because you're putting load on the axe, like on ice brows so that it will bite into the ice, like without swinging. So periodically like loading it. And I think. This is how I tried it on a flat ice. And I saw that it, that it, that, that it worked. I saw that I could climb something that I could not swing into. So I had a feeling that I'm up to, up to something very interesting, but I didn't really know how and where to apply this technique. Although if you are thinking about it, like it's kind of obvious now, but, but back then. And then I saw, uh, I think like a next year or something. There was a pillar in a uh, Rouge that I was afraid to swing into. So we dropped the top rope on it and I climbed it with scratching and I saw that it actually worked and I could really feel that I'm not disturbing the ice. What was the response to this technique? Our response was <laughs> very, very varied. And I was really, I was really like, I, I even want to say more than upset because from my point of view, I'm coming up with something that can save people's life. Okay. That if you spend and invest time into practice on this technique and it will save your life because lots of, lots of pillars, almost all of them, they will go down because climbers are over swinging. Okay. So they're sending this vibration into pillar, causing them to crack. So I saw it as a safety tool. Like to me, it was something that can save people's life. So to me, it was a big thing. And I absolutely couldn't understand how come some of the biggest names in the climbing are giving me such a hard time, giving me so much shit. I just couldn't understand it. Like, like it just doesn't make any sense to me. And yeah. And then I got to understand the politics and how this thing work. And I, and I learned to how do you say, well, you know, it just, it just your opinion. So yeah, whatever. You learn to be like water and just let it roll off your back. <laughs> I guess from your perspective, are you seeing more adoption of this technique? Because even when I'm, I know Instagram is not the best example, but I'm watching on Instagram people climbing, you know, mixed route and then coming on to hanging pillars and they might be tick, tick very delicately tapping in, but I don't really see the scratching. I know, I know, I know lots of people that do, or at least this is what they say to me, but uh, it's definitely something, it's not something that comes natural while swinging less and tapping, it kind of does come natural because, because you're swinging all the time. So you just reduce the intensity and the force in the swing. So it's much more natural, but sometimes there are features that you just cannot even tap. So 
I I think it will it will take time, but it's also the problem is that if you if you have doubt, you will never be able to scratch. I myself always have a pair of scratching picks in my backpack in case things things get like really bad. So I will be able to swap into like brand new picks so like I can like I can scratch uh, really well. So I think it will come and you know, even even the awareness, because I know that I know that people pretty much around the world know now like about this technique. And to me, I did my part. That's great. Because even if you know about the thing, even if you didn't practice it a lot, you can still apply it again in case your peaks are sharp, your front points are sharp. You can still apply it. It it, it can still save your life. How critical is the pick for this technique? Because you did work with uh, Kurkanogi on the special pick. Pretty critical. Pretty critical. Yeah. Like you can, you can sharpen uh, factory picks, but factory picks, the way they come from major manufacturers like Bethel, Cutting, BD, they are not going, they're not good for scratching. I'm just going to be pedantic. So like, do you need like a, the, the, the pick that I saw from Kukunogi, it seemed to have like a very prominent beak and very thin, um, uh, came down to a very thin point at the, at the tip. So what I wanted when I, and when we, when we made this pick, so I wanted the least amount of steel penetrating dice, which will result in the least amount of ice displayed, which will result in the least amount of ice broken. And it must be prominence. Um, what, what brought you to Quebec? When I came to Canada, so as we said, I was living in Ontario. So I was basically driving every weekend from Ontario to Quebec. I knew more or less the the character and the amount of fight Quebec has to offer. I knew the potential. And so as I climbed so much in the Rockies and kind of got tired with the, with the endless avalanche cycle, because like with me being climbing there for seven years. And when I say climbing, I like come for like two months of climbing, living in the van, climbing full time. There are still lines that after seven years of being there, I couldn't, I couldn't climb them because I couldn't approach them because of the crazy avalanche cycle. And a few avalanches that, that I triggered, it just kind of, oh man, like I know there are some awesome lines in the rocket, but it's avalanche factor is really, oh, I'm so tired of it. And then, and then I knew again, the potential of the Quebec. I know how wild, how wild the ice in Quebec is. I know that there is very little development. There is nobody guiding a multi-pitch line. So it was a niche. Yeah. So it felt like it's time to go back to the stomping ground and start exploring Quebec, which definitely, definitely, definitely has everything that Rockies has to offer, but without avalanche danger and without the beauty of the mountain, for sure, for sure. But you're talking in terms of ice climbing, it's all here. And it looks like some just awesome mixed routes. I mean, you're, you're putting up like M8s, M9s, WI6 stuff left and right. Looks wild. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, not exactly left and right because again, it's so there is, there is development. It's just that somehow the local kind of managed to keep it on a very low profile with letting with very few people outside of Quebec or Canada mostly Quebec knowing about this stuff. So there is, there is development, 
but because I cannot even compare remotely the amount of climbers in Quebec to the amount of climbers in the Rockies, there is tons of stuff to be open, like new line within one hour drive. Yeah, there's a lot. I was talking to a few climbers from New Hampshire recently, and they were saying that because of climate change, the season's been quite a bit shorter in New England. Um, that Quebec was like the future of ice climbing for New Englanders. And <laughs> <laughs> dry tooling was probably the future of climbing in New England. Yeah, yeah. So, well, last year we started to climb mid-November. And hopefully this year we'll probably even start to climb beginning of November. But yeah, it's a pretty, it's a pretty long season. It's not, not September. No, 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 not September. <laughs> not Norway, <laughs> not September. All right. This is the last question. What does open up your fist mean? Because I did see it on your uh, Instagram profile. So I was curious. Yeah. It, it, <laughs> it's funny because a few people asked me, giving me like different, different version. Somebody thought that it's a... Uh, the way that we tend to overgrip the handle of the nice tool. <laughs> so basically your fist, when you have your fist is a sign of, is a sign of war, is a sign of aggression. When you, when you open your, when you open up your fist, just show that you come with, with open intentions, with, with open heart. Thanks so much, Stas. Really appreciate chatting. Oh, thank you, Aaron. Wrapping up. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, remember that sharing is caring, so consider sending it along to a friend that shows you really, really care.